0: It's Sunday the 9th of April 1939 and the O'Brien family is setting sail from Double Bay for Lord Howe Island aboard their motor yacht Hispaniola. George O'Brien has been much in the newspapers as the Sydney taxi driver who, without any boat building or navigational experience, built this 30-foot boat so that he and his wife Doris and their sons Lyle, age 10, and Noel, 8, could go on a round-the-world voyage. Their first stop is Lord Howe, which they expect to reach in five or six days. After that, they're off to San Francisco. Beyond that, it's a case of bring me that horizon. Hispaniola is, of course, named for the ship in Treasure Island. George has cheerfully told reporters, Perhaps our voyage will be as adventurous as the voyage of that ship. Robert Louis Stevenson's heroes did have a pretty rip-roaring time aboard their Hispaniola. Perhaps the newspaper reporters that George speaks to aren't game to point out that at the end of Treasure Island, Jim notes, quote, five men only of those who sailed returned with her. But as George, Doris, Lyle and Noel head out of Sydney Harbour on this autumn day, they're all happy waves and big smiles for the newspaper cameras. One week passes, then two. It's Saturday, the 22nd of April, 1939. Hispaniola still hasn't reached Lord Howe Island. The O'Brien family are at least a week overdue. The Sydney Morning Herald uses that well worn phrase in its headline No anxiety felt. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part seven of the eight part Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. The final part will be out next week, but if you'd like to hear the whole story now and listen to two bonus episodes that came out of research for the Mysteries of Mystery Island, you can do so by becoming a supporter of Forgotten Australia. For more information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia or click the link in your show notes. In October 1938, Sydney's George O'Brien suddenly achieved strange celebrity status when he told the papers he was about to launch his own homemade yacht with which he was going to sail the seas. Newspapers loved him and his attractive young university graduate wife, Doris. Records at Ancestry.com.au show the couple married in 1927. When they started making the newspapers, George and Doris said ever since their wedding, they'd both dreamed of seeing the world. Problem was, they didn't have enough money to travel, a situation not helped by the financial responsibilities that came with having two young sons. During the 1930s, the couple said they came to despise city life. They yearned for the freedom of the open ocean. They saw pictures of a yacht they liked and asked for a quote to build such a vessel, or so the story went. They were told it would be £1,000 to construct the yacht and to equip it. George O'Brien decided he'd build one for himself. Doris was rather bemused. She'd write for the Daily Telegraph, quote, At the time, I laughed at him because he could not even level the legs of a table I had in the kitchen. By the time the legs were leveled, the table was only a foot from the floor. But George went at it from around April 1937. Right when Brian Abbott's final film, Mystery Island, was in cinemas. George was so keen he gave up his carrying business and drove a taxi at night so he could pay for materials and work on Hispaniola at a Rushcutters Bay boatyard during the daytime and on weekends. Doris did her bit by starting a dressmaking business to make more money for their dream boat. According to her article, quote, Hubby made all his own moulds around which the boat is built. He set the stern, keel and sternpost, weighing nearly a tonne, by himself. A steam box was necessary to steam hardwood ribs that they might be bent into shape. So he built one. Newspapers reported that taxi driver mates helped George out with the finishing touches and extra-strong sails were hand sewn for Hispaniola by the man who'd done the same work for Ernest Shackleton that time he went to the Antarctic. Hispaniola had a wood stove in the galley, an ice chest to keep meat fresh for 10 days, and tanks for 100 gallons of fresh water. Hisi, as the motor yacht would be known, weighed six tons with a two-ton keel. On the 25th of October 1938, reporters, a newsreel camera and a legion of cabbies came for the launch, with Doris cracking a bottle over the hull and in the excitement turning and kissing the wrong man. The family was making preparations for that world trip. Doris was going to get education department correspondence materials so she could teach their boys aboard the Hissy on their epic trip. Doris was also furthering her own education, quote, At present, I am studying navigation with Hubby, just in case anything should happen to him that he could not carry on. But before they went around the world, George O'Brien was going to take Hissey on a trial voyage to Lord Howe Island. He had one crew member already, but he needed two more, so he advertised. Despite what had happened in late 1936 to Mystery Star and Viking, 73 people applied for the two berths on Hispaniola, with almost every applicant describing himself as a capable cook. George O'Brien's crew would comprise Don Kitching, Dick Jackson and a man named Neil Sandry, who'd recently had his own adventure when he and two mates had sailed a yacht from Melbourne to far north Queensland, with Neil writing feature articles about their travels and their travails. On Monday the 14th of November 1938, the Daily Telegraph's front page featured a photo of George O'Brien planting a big kiss on Doris before he and his three crewmates headed off. The voyage was news all over Australia, and George told reporters he was the happiest man in Sydney because he'd realised his dream. "For the last 18 months, I've been driving a taxi cab at night and building the boat in the daytime. Almost every penny I have has gone into her. I have not smoked a cigarette for months." This was a good news story, and I'm guessing that's why reporters didn't push back against George and Doris's claim to be nautical newbies who'd done it all themselves. Why let the truth get in the way of such an entertaining yarn? Surely they knew that George had, at the very least, someone who could advise him, say, if he was putting that two-ton keel on backwards. But further, the people providing this help might have gone some way to actually explaining why George felt the need to prove himself like this at sea. Before Doris married George, she was Doris' messenger. And her family members were pretty famous for their athleticism, achievements, adventures and antics on the water and on the football field. Doris's great-great-grandfather was James Messenger, who was a world champion sculler and Queen Victoria's Waterman and Barge Master. Doris's great-grandfather, also James, was also a world champion sculler and a boat builder. Which brings us to Doris's grandfather, Charles Amos Messenger, who came to Australia in the 1870s so he could show the Colonials what a fantastic scholar he was before establishing a boat building business first in Melbourne and then in Sydney's Double Bay. One of his sons, Herbert Henry, better known as Dally Messenger, worked in the boat shed before becoming one of the world's most famous rugby and rugby league players. One of Charles Amos's other sons, also named Charles, was Doris Messenger's father. And it's this Charlie, as he was known, and his son Charles Jr. we're going to focus on because they loomed largest in the lives of George and Doris O'Brien. My theory is that what Charles and Charles Jr. got up to likely inspired George to want to prove himself at sea. So while George is trying to get to Lord Howe Island in his home-built hissy, let's hear about these messengers. Charlie was born in 1879 and took over the boat shed when his father died in 1905. While being known for this business, and for being, of course, a New South Wales sculling champion, Charlie was to become most famous as Australia's foremost shark hunter. From around the start of World War I, Charlie was in the newspapers a lot for his exploits in Sydney Harbour and off Sydney's beaches. A 1914 photo in the sun showed him standing in a suit on a rock in shallows with five big fellows he'd caught arrayed around his feet. In 1927, the Daily Telegraph ran a front page story about one of his shark hunts and a photo essay inside that showed the whole process, including Charlie finishing off his catch with a hand-thrown harpoon before laying it out on the beach to show it was longer than two men. At 15 feet, this shark was thought to be a record for Sydney Harbour. Charlie was back on page one of the Daily Telegraph the next year, showing off another dead monster from the deep under the headline Making the sea safe for surfers. In December 1929, when a 16-year-old boy was mauled to death off Balmain, Charlie was called in to try to catch the man-eater. On that occasion, he didn't catch his prey, but soon after, he caught a 13-foot tiger shark that became a star attraction of Zoo's aquarium. Charlie was, to put it mildly, a wild man. When a shark was on the line and near the boat, he'd jump into the water and put a noose around its tail. Then, if the mood took him, which it did at least on a few occasions, he'd get on the shark's back and ride it as it was hauled into the boat. Charlie wasn't just in the newspapers constantly, he was also on the radio, giving talks about the white death lurking in Sydney waters and how to avoid becoming a shark's dinner. By 1931, Charlie reckoned he'd caught 2,500 sharks. On the family front, Charlie taught his son Charles everything he knew, and he'd also take Doris out in his motor launches so she wasn't quite the nautical newbie that those newspaper articles would have readers believe. Charlie Messenger and Charles Jr. also starred in a series of utterly bizarre incidents in 1930-31. These had all of Australia talking. The first is a story I've been aware of for a while, so I was delighted when I found out that it intersected with George O'Brien and his Lord Howe Island dream. I can't do better to introduce it than this little report in the Illawarra Mercury on the 13th of June, 1930. Quote, Four Bulambi fishermen have told a story of seeing a sea serpent almost 50 feet long and fins like the sail of a boat. It was seen near the reef, and it is stated the fishermen pulled for the shore with such vigour that they nearly wore a hole in the bottom of the boat. As they are all teetotalers, they must have seen something big it appears that they first of all thought it was wreckage floating on the surface and pulled out to see it. When near to it, the water became agitated and out of the deep appeared the fierce-looking creature with big open mouth and long slimy-looking body. They waited for nothing more. It was a case of, pull for the shore, sailor, pull for the shore. They have not gone out fishing since. This story was everywhere, with other papers doing follow-ups. Sydney's Evening News said the fishermen were reputable, sensibly-minded chaps. One of them, Ron Wiley, told the paper, We have seen whales, sharks and all kinds of sea monsters during our several years fishing off the south coast, and we have never seen anything that resembled a serpent more than this one. Ron said they'd thought it was wreckage at first and then maybe the back of a whale. He continued... We decided to get a closer view and had pulled the boat to within 20 yards of the object when the monster raised its head and about four feet of its neck out of the water. Its fins, which projected from its shoulders, were fully three feet high. The color was between brown and black, with a white stomach. It had a beak, something like a pelican, and its mouth, when full open, was easily big enough to swallow a man or a good-sized beast. When it rose out of the water, it wriggled like a snake. Ron and his mates tried to get the hell out of there. Reaching the beach, they turned and saw the sea serpent wasn't far behind them, Ron told the evening news. It opened its mouth and roared something like a seal, only louder, and we saw for an instant about 25 feet of its body. Ron's three mates backed the story. According to a large article in Adelaide's Mail, quote, A digger who had seen Gallipoli and Flanders at their worst and who saw them when they landed said he had never seen such terror in men's faces in the battlefields of either. Anglers, sea salts, and scientific experts weighed in. One man said it had probably been a giant calamari. Another reckoned a big oar paddlefish. And a third suggested a pike whale that he said was known to make a noise if it was being attacked. There were more sea serpent sightings in the coming weeks. And in 1930, if you had a sea monster on your hands, who were you going to call? Charlie Messenger, shark hunter. On the 4th of July, he and his namesake shark hunting son said they were heading south in the 35-foot launch Lady Dudley. The vessel was specially fitted for catching sharks and they were taking with them heavy fishing tackle and heavy firearms. For the record, Charles said he believed it was a black shark which had the habit of basking on the surface or maybe a gigantic blackfish which he knew grew up to 30 feet. They left Sydney on the 7th of July and set about cruising for the sea serpent. It was, as the Adelaide News justifiably remarked, one of the strangest fishing excursions in the history of Australia. Even if Charlie Messenger didn't catch the monster, he'd still be making a bit of money taking a few passengers who were paying £5 to £10 to be part of this landmark expedition. An insurance company offered a policy to cover this party. It's not known if that was taken up, but surely the wording of any document would have made it the strangest in Australian insurance history. In addition to his fishing tackle and his firearms, Charlie Messenger took a movie camera, because the syndicate had offered £2,000 for footage of the beastie. Day in, day out, those on Lady Dudley saw a lot of sea, but no serpent. After about a week, Charlie went back to Sydney, but he wasn't giving up. He ridiculed one so-called maritime expert who said witnesses had merely gotten excited over a big submerged log. Charlie told the Evening News, quote, I have received further reports that the monster is still cruising about the coast near Ballambi, and I am determined to solve the mystery. Whatever the thing is, I'm determined to get it this time. The Messenger family just couldn't keep out of the newspapers at this point. On the afternoon of Thursday the 17th of July, Wally Messenger, a football hero like his brother Dally, had gone out on the harbour with a mate to do a spot of fishing. In the dark winter night, their boat capsized between the heads and they struggled in the waves for an hour until they were saved by a boat launched from a manly ferry. Wally was a hero. As his mate told the Daily Pictorial, quote, he held me up for 25 minutes while I was unconscious. Three nights after that, Charlie was proving what he was made of. He was walking back from the Sydney Stadium in Darling Point when he was jumped by two men. One of these thugs grabbed him around the neck and dragged him to the footpath. Charlie gave this bloke a hiding and his mate too. As the National Advocate reported, quote, Messenger put a headlock on them one at a time and left them lying on the road. None the worse for wear, and with the weather clearer, Charlie set off again for the south coast to search for the sea serpent, though this time he left Charles Jr. at home. Charlie's return coincided with another sighting, this time in Kiama, where three men saw the sea serpent speeding along, head and big long neck held high out of the water. Then it dived and disappeared towards the blowhole, where, as one newspaper reported, underground caverns abound but because Charlie was down on the south coast, he was about to miss out on something extraordinary in Sydney Harbour. In the city at this time, another monster had risen to its highest point. The two arches of the Sydney Harbour Bridge were just one week from the big moment that had everyone wondering, would they join or had the whole thing been a seven-year folly? On the 12th of August, Bridge workers and city citizens forgot all about that question for a moment because there was a sea monster in Sydney Harbour. In the beautifully vivid words of a daily pictorial article, quote, "...bridge workers are not easily excited. Yesterday they saw, without losing their balance, a strange object moving in the waters below. Further scrutiny proved it to be a whale. The visitor had come in without warning." No doubt the fame of Sydney's newest wonder had reached him. He swam under the towering arch, bestowing on it the respectful glance that one mammoth would be expected to give another. The whale also lightened the gloom of the economic crisis, which it was now clear was here to stay. Quote, Gambling and diving, and now and again raising himself joyously out of the water, the Leviathan behaved in a manner that rebuked by implication the heavy-headed depression that hangs over a great part of Sydney. The sea serpent could not have given a more carefree exhibition. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that the humpback was nearly 45 feet long and 14 feet across the tail. It achieved the honour of being the first whale to pass under the harbour bridge. Several motorboats went out in hot pursuit, including one carrying a Sydney Morning Herald reporter and a photographer. The whale went to Mossman, then Circular Quay, to Bennelong Point and over to Dawes Point. Bridge workers had the best view and they were shouting down to the boats directing the pursuit of the Leviathan. Ferry passengers were excited beyond measure and city workers gave up their lunch hours to line the shore. But for some men at this time, the whale represented the thrill of the hunt. Charles Messenger Jr. and some of his mates grabbed harpoons, jumped in a launch and set out to kill it. Reaching the whale, Charles hurled his harpoon. The Sydney Morning Herald, quote, The monster lashed around with its tail and shattered portion of the superstructure of the launch in which the hunter was poised, nearly throwing him into the water. The article continued, quote, Those aboard the Herald launch were enjoying the humorous side of this incident when the whale suddenly rose underneath their own frail craft, lifting it perceptibly. They were no longer amused. The whale headed up the harbour, spouting here and there, its back and tail often visible. Despite the damage to his boat and the fact that he'd nearly been smashed himself, Charles Jr. was still in pursuit between Watson's Bay and Shark Island, moving in with his harpoons whenever the whale was sighted but the leviathan was wise to the threat. Quote, On a number of occasions, Messenger came close enough to hurl a weapon, but the speed with which the whale dived rendered attempts at capture futile. Nightfall found the monster still at large. The whale escaped through the heads the next morning, Charles Messenger Jr. giving chase a few miles out to sea before it escaped. But he had done it damage. Melbourne's Herald reported, Quote, Its barnacle-encrusted body revealed the wounds made in yesterday's attempts to harpoon it. Some of the city's citizens were disgusted and protests were made to the RSPCA, with one report I've been unable to verify saying that whales thereafter were declared protected in Port Jackson. Down on the south coast, Charlie Sr.'s second sea serpent search had come to naught, but a maritime monster awaited him where he least expected it. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. On Saturday, the 11th of October, in heavy rain, Charlie was churning across Rushcutters Bay at 18 knots an hour in his speedboat named, of all things, Mystery when he hit, of all things, the sort of floating log that lesser maritime men might mistake for a sea serpent. Charlie and his passenger were thrown into the shark-infested harbour. Mystery's bow was ripped open and it sank in 10 seconds. The men swam for shore, expecting sharks to tear them apart at any moment. After 10 minutes, they were picked up by other boaties. Six days later, Charlie was in his swimmers and back at the sinking site in a boat with a few mates. Mystery, which was valued at around 300 pounds, was down there in 25 feet of water. Charlie took a big breath and went over the side with ropes to attach to his sunken launch so it could be raised. He was on the bottom going about his business when suddenly his legs were gripped. Looking around, Charlie saw an octopus with a body about two feet across and tentacles seven feet long. Charlie pulled the suckers from his legs, but then others wrapped around him. The octopus had him, and he couldn't get free. Charlie tugged the rope frantically, and up on the surface, his mates got the message that he was in distress. They hauled him up, and the octopus retained its grip until Charlie broke the surface. Then it let go and slid back into the deep. Until next time. After that, Charlie hired a diving pro in a suit to salvage his precious mystery. On the 27th of October, another humpback. This one, 35 feet long, came into Sydney Harbour, providing more thrills as it came west as far as Double Bay. If whales were actually officially protected by then, the double act of Charlie and Charles Jr. didn't care because they set out to harpoon it. But they were no match for this humpback. As the Kaiōgal examiner would report, quote, The whale became aware of this danger and seldom remained on the surface more than five seconds. In addition, the monster dived haphazardly so that the place where he rose from underneath the water could not be anticipated. But the sea serpent, the octopus and the two whales weren't the most famous ones that got away from Charlie Messenger at this time. In October 1931, he was at Manly Baths watching Andrew Boyd Charlton training for his Olympic comeback. Boyd's trainer, Harry Hay, said to Charlie, quote, Isn't it a treat to watch that powerful body ploughing rhythmically through the water? Charlie replied, Powerful nothing. You don't know what real power is until you fight a shark with rod and reel. I could stop Boyd in a second with ordinary shark tackle. Challenge accepted. A photographer and a journalist for the sun just happened to be handy, and Charlie just happened to have his shark rod, harness, and an array of lines. The shark hunter attached a 12-cord to a belt around boy's waist. The Olympian got in the water. Charlie stood on a rock ledge, his bare toes gripping like limpets. Charlie said to boy, Don't swim too far. I'll only pull you back. Ready, set, go. Boy swam off. Charlie strained, his rod bent, and the line snapped. Charlie next tried an 18-cord line, the type he'd use for the average shark. Boy snapped it, no problem. Charlie produced heavier lines, the ones he'd used to bring in quote, the largest sharks captured in Sydney waters. Snap and snap. Charlie had only one option left, the 30-cord, with the 60-pound breaking strain that he used to bring in 1,000-pound sharks. The Sun reported, quote, Off boy swam, his giant arms and legs flogging the water into foam. He won yards of line against the break. Messenger closed his hands around the reel and stopped it spinning. He pumped the rod. He turned blue, then purple in the face. He strained every muscle. Charlie gasped, He isn't a man, he's a whale. The Sun, quote, It became an endurance contest. The rod and line would not break. It was a case of who could hang on the longest. Finally, Charlie all but collapsed and released the brake. As the lion screamed and boy tore away, the shark hunter wasn't too proud to admit he'd been beaten. Quote, He's the most powerful fish I've ever hooked. My biggest fish, a 22 foot 6 inch white death or terror shark, was a joker compared with the fight boy gave me. Those legs and arms and that chest should carry him over many Olympic miles. Charlie Messenger was larger than life, and his stories were known all over Australia. So imagine being his son-in-law, and hearing his tales over the dinner table, and that of Doris's brother Charles, and her uncles Dally and Wally, and feeling the history of this family of heroes. It might be enough to make a button-down chap want to prove himself, possibly by sailing to Lord Howe Island, and then around the world in a homemade boat. Given George O'Brien was intending on taking Doris and their sons, I'm guessing Charlie Messenger made sure that Hissy was ship shape and that his son knew everything possible about navigation. Even so, as we've heard, anything could happen out in the Tasman. After Hissy left Sydney Harbour on the 14th of November, nothing was heard of George O'Brien for nine days. Then, just like that, Hissy arrived at Lord Howe Island. The journey had been slowed by calm waters and headwinds, but otherwise it had been a breeze. George and his mates planned to stay a few days and then head back, which they did. It took them four and a half days. George and his crew sailed up the harbour. his sails filled by a favourable wind, the moment captured by the Sun newspaper. His crewman, Neil Sandry wrote a piece for the Sydney Morning Herald saying their success was testament to George's determination despite him having to deal with, quote, certain pessimistic souls uttering dark forebodings. George O'Brien had completed his trial. Now it was time to take Doris and the boys around the world. On Sunday, the 9th of April, the O'Brien family set sail from Double Bay. First stop, Lord Howe. On the 22nd of April, Hissey was 13 days out and there was no word. Weather reports said that for the first four days they'd sailed into moderately unfavourable winds. Then, on the 15th of April, 200 miles off Lord Howe Island, there'd been a severe storm with rough seas and big winds reaching gale force. Things calmed down, but on the 20th of April, the steamer Marinda was stuck 100 miles off the island because it was caught in another gale. Doris's mother told the Daily Telegraph, If they don't arrive at Lord Howe within the next two days, I'll start to worry. Two days passed, and then another two. The Daily Telegraph's headline on Anzac Day was horribly familiar to anybody who was familiar with the story of Mystery Star and Viking. Quote, Overdue catch, no cause for worry. This time there wasn't. Hissy came back into Palm Beach that night. They'd had a hell of a time. George's chronometer had become defective on the second day out of Sydney. Then that hit a heavy gale. He'd tried to ride it out. The staysail boom broke and the jib was torn. He told the Daily Telegraph, quote, "For two days and two nights, I did not leave the tiller." My wife passed up all my meals to me. Hissy was blown 200 miles off course, best he could gather. While he was trying to work out where they were, a second gale blew in. George hove to, strapped the tiller and stayed in the cabin with his family, listening to the gale howl day and night. George insisted to the Sydney Morning Herald, We were not in danger at any stage of the trip. The experience convinced me more and more of the fact that a small boat properly designed, is better than a large one. Whether he knew it or not, what George had just said was an eerie echo of what Gordon Doherty had said in Hobart just weeks before he died. That second gale had lasted five days, blowing hissy another 200 miles off course. When it was over, George realised it was now going to take too long to reach Lord Howe Island, so he'd turned around and made for Palm Beach. Note how he phrased his reason to the Daily Telegraph. Quote, I knew my wife's parents would worry if we were overdue too long. That was my main reason for turning back. George, Doris and their sons weren't giving up. On the 9th of May, they set out from Palm Beach in Hissey for Lord Howe again. A week passed, then two, then three. On the 30th of May, the Daily Telegraph headline read... Hispaniola overdue at Lord Howe. Even fearless shark-riding Charlie Messenger admitted to feeling a little anxious. But not too much. He reckoned Hissy had missed Lord Howe and they were on their way back. Besides, the boat had water and provisions for three months. Next day, Hissy was back at Palm Beach, battered but safe. In the sun's photo, George was smiling. Dora seemed to be trying to smile, but Lyle and Noel looked like they were well over it. Hissy had gotten within 90 miles of Lord Howe, only to be beaten back by a gale. On the 23rd of May, George had turned back. His chronometer was broken, they were nearly out of fresh water due to a tank leak, other supplies were actually running short, and Hissy's deck had been damaged. Even so, George said the ship had performed magnificently and he said his boys had stood up to the ordeal like hardened sailors. All of this was easier to say when you were back on land. But George also shared his log with the Sun newspaper, and it painted a scarier picture at the time. Quote, May 23, turned about for Broken Bay, position hopeless, water tank leaking at the tap, we are short of water, no sight for latitude, black overhead. A severe cyclone hit so suddenly, the running gear was carried away before George could heave to. Winds hit 80 miles an hour. Waves were huge. Based on what George told them, the Sydney Morning Herald described the most terrifying one. It struck the craft with full force, making a noise like thunder. The timbers creaked and the vessel was shifted bodily, broadside on, an appreciable distance. George wrote in his log on the 24th of May, Gale eased slightly, still heavy, Hove to, spirit of crew low. The gale would last another day before they limped home. George was not put off. He said he'd be going again, but the next trip would be made with a crew of men, while Doris and the boys spent a bit of time on terra firma. Despite the two nightmare trips he'd just had, George O'Brien had a lot of people apply to sail with him on hissy. He chose a pastry cook named Ralph Gilbert and a taxi driver named Jack Hamilton. As The Sun reported, both, quote, have had no experience in sailing ships. Hissey set off from Palm Beach on the 21st of June 1939. The Border Morning Mail's headline summed it up neatly, quote, Try, try, try again. George was back at Palm Beach four days later. Ralph, the pastry cook with no seagoing experience, had become so cook that had no option but to turn around. Nevertheless, George was going to try, 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 try again. At noon on Wednesday the 28th of June, Hissy set sail for Lord Howe Island from Palm Beach. This time, it was just George O'Brien and Jack Hamilton. Hissy was back that night. Jack had become seasick. George said... He was going to try again, alone. Hearing this in Sydney the next morning, Doris sent a telegram to her husband. She said, wait, she'd come up and she'd sail with him. Doris got a reply from Palm Beach that simply said, George had already gone, alone. No handshakes, no goodbyes. Worryingly, Jack Hamilton told reporters that George had told him this was his, quote, do-or-die crossing. George was just 10 hours into his voyage when the weather began to deteriorate. He hove to and went below. Over the next hour, he had an epiphany. While realising his dream to get to Lord Howe Island and get around the world was important, he realised he'd left the most important thing to him on the mainland. His family, Doris and the boys, they were what really mattered. George decided that his epic journey could wait. Maybe he and the family could do it together in a few years' time. George made up his mind. He was turning his he around. Except now, it was too late. A tremendous gale hit, and it kept on hitting. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. The eighth and final part will be released next week. In it, we'll hear what became of George O'Brien and his family. We're also going to hear the fates of other people we've met in this episode from Brian Abbott's wife Grace and his brother Hal Ricard Bell, to adventurer Wally Pankhurst and Gowal Wilson's little son Roy, who'd maintained that vigil for Viking up on Lord Howe Island's Malabar Hill in 1936. While we're almost there, if you'd like to hear the final instalment now, you can do so by becoming a supporter of Forgotten Australia. For info, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and the link is also in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening.